you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. One of the major rewrites to the play happened two days before press night. I have a really good friend. He saw the play and he's like, everything in the play felt super honest until this one moment. He, he said that and like it kind of annoyed me and hurt my feelings. And then I was sat with it and I was like, oh, it hurts your feelings because you know he's right. And I went and I rewrote the entire section, sent it to the cast, and we put it on its feet that night. Today's guest is the inimitable playwright, Jeremy O'Harris. Yeah, Jeremy O'Harris is definitely the next big thing, or maybe even the the now big thing. The current big thing. <laughs> the current big thing would be better English. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy wrote Slave Play, um, which you saw, Lila, and which had this amazing sold-out run on Broadway last year. It was a huge phenomenon. Um, he had another play in, on in New York called Daddy, which um, was set to open at the Armada Theatre here in London soon after I spoke to him in March, um, but of course has been delayed along with everything else. But it's not just theatre that he does. He has written a film which should be coming out later this year called Zola. He's a co-producer on series two of Euphoria mm-hmm. uh, on TV. And he has also struck this amazing sounding two-year deal with HBO, um, which we can talk about a bit later. But he's basically the person everyone wants to work with right now, I think. Yeah, we're so excited to have him on the show. Lila, how are you today? I'm good, Chris. Thank you. It's been a nice day, actually. How about you? Well, Lila, today's been very exciting for me because um, <laughs> today I ventured further from my house than I've been in about nine weeks. Um, I went to the hospital for a pregnancy checkup, just like a regular thing. Um, now that I'm in my kind of final third of pregnancy, these are like more regular appointments. Um, right. And I got an Uber to the hospital Um and just kind of looked at London through the windows. It was incredibly exciting. <laughs> the baby was like kicking really hard. It was like the great escape. I was like, come on. You guys got out, the two of you. <laughs> we broke out. So that felt good, like to see the world beyond your little patch. Nice. And how's the baby? The baby's fine. Yeah. No idea what's going on on the outside world. Uh, lucky baby. But yeah, you and I have been speaking more often because of all these bonus episodes that we've been recording recently. <laughs> um but yeah, I would love to know what you've been up to. It's so funny you say bonus episodes. My dad called me yesterday and he said like, what's going on over there? You guys keep publishing episodes. Can you slow down? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we have a lot to say. Um, anyway, so uh, a couple things really um, that I wanted to recommend. Um, to, uh, one is I had the luxury of taking a week off recently, which I know mm. not everybody can do. Um Uh, But it was a real joy. I mean, it gave me a chance to just kind of let my mind wander and get distracted by something in the kitchen and then like lean into it. Mm. So I made this Persian dish called Kuku Sabzi, which was incredible and very easy. So I'm going to link to that. Wow. Yeah, I do. In the show notes. But relatedly, what I started reading, which was very prescient to this time, was that bestselling book, How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Yes, I've been hearing about that book everywhere for the last few months. Yeah. So it was published about a year ago and the paperback is about to come out. So you all should order it from your local bookstore. And also our listeners kept telling us that they've been um, reading it too. So that got me interested. It's not a guidebook, even though it's called How to Do Nothing. And it's a little bit meandering, although that's kind of 
by design. And it's a little academic in its style, so you have to be into that. But it's basically about resisting the attention economy and how capitalism and technology work together to monetize every moment of our lives, which is something that we all kind of know. Mm. But she articulates it really brilliantly. Like she talks about how our social platforms like Instagram and Facebook, et cetera, they depend on fear and anxiety and jealousy and dopamine manipulation Hmm. and how our value is determined by productivity and progress and the strength of our careers and building a personal brand. And all of that comes from this attention economy. It's very depressing when you put it like that. (laughs) Yeah, and it feels even more like irrelevant right now. Mm. what matters is has all been mixed up and I don't know thrown out and is almost it's become it's like less clear and more clear Mm. and yeah at the same time people are spending more time on social media than ever because we don't have as much to do yeah I mean most of our social interactions have to happen online now so we're almost more tempted by these forces so it's kind of a weird time right so Her overarching point is that we're people and we contain multitudes and we have a lot of complexity and there's so much that gives us value and meaning that can't be packaged and promoted and sold, you know? Um, Mm. So it was sort of thinking about how to resist. But right now, as you were saying, like, we have to have these experiences more online. We're more dependent on it. Um, Also, being alone and being confined and being with ourselves isn't like a choice we're making, but a mandate. Mm. and so it was just like, it was an interesting read for right now. I really, I really have been liking it. Um, she says, which makes me feel better, that the villain isn't necessarily the internet or the idea of social media. It's not about like turning everything off. It's about the logic of commercial social media and its incentive structure. And so she asks whether we can use social media more as a public utility where you go to do something, connect and then leave versus a place where you go and then scroll and then suddenly it's two hours later and you don't even know where your time went. Yeah, so it's kind of just being conscious of how you use it. Yeah, exactly. And I was interested in this idea of a public utility and she uses public parks as an example of an act of resistance, like a place that Mm. isn't commercialized, but actually is a place where you can just go and be and use and it's not going to be trying to sell you anything. It just exists for you. Um, And I, I mean, I don't know about you, but as someone who's spending a lot of time in my public park in Brooklyn these days, Prospect Park, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm very <laughs> grateful for it. Like that really resonated. Like, and it made me think like, what would the internet even look like as a public utility? Like, could you imagine? And um, mm. and, it, and it is, you know, I mean, like we we all have to use it. So in many ways it is, even though we're paying for it. So basically like, how can we use it that way? It was an interesting question that I have no answer to. Yeah, that's so interesting. We also had a lot of listeners suggest that we have Jenny O'Dell on the podcast, um, Mm -hmm. that we interview her. (laughs) And uh, so I reached out and in true, like, practice how you preach fashion, Jenny O'Dell is declining all interview requests until July. So she is not tempted to use this time to build her brand. I admire her response hugely. And yet it's incredibly frustrating. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Just make an exception. (laughs) Right, right. We need you right now, Jenny. But the book does enough. The book does a lot. Mm. So the other thing I wanted to recommend that the world is watching, or at least America is watching, is The Last Dance, which is the 10-part series on ESPN about Michael Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls. Have you heard of it, Grizz? No, I haven't seen it. 
It was released early. So um, this is something they've been working on for years. And it was released early to give all the sports fans out there something to watch. And you probably know, Grizz, based on my recommendations, that I am by no means a sports nut. But I will say that there is something extremely moving about learning more about the greatest athlete of all time. Mm. And um, and really, like, just a, the greatest anything of all time. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. You know, again, I don't know what great basketball is supposed to look like, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. But watching old <laughs> clips of Michael Jordan play is just like, I don't, it's like poetic. Like, mm. it's beautiful. I don't know. He just looks like he was born for it. It's just, it's really incredible. And like, mm. you know, two former presidents are in it. And, um, and so it's just interesting. I mean, the documentary is really important to the culture and to this moment right now. And I really recommend it. And I will put a link in the show notes. And so how do I watch it if I'm not in the States? Yeah, so in the U.S., you can stream it on ESPN.com. And um, you guys outside of the U.S., in the U.K. and elsewhere, can all get it on Netflix. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> that, that was sound... like a, I'm definitely not going to watch that, but thanks <laughs> for letting me know. Well, Lila, you never know. I might surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about you. Uh, what have you been up to? It's funny that you mentioned Netflix because I've been thinking particularly about a the kind of documentaries that you get on Netflix and developing a kind of, I was about to say a kind of thesis. I'm not sure. I think that's probably <laughs> too grand a word for what I'm about to say. <laughs> You've got a theory. Yes. So thinking about Netflix documentaries, the first one I watched, I think this year mm -hmm. was that Goop documentary or kind of series um, that Gwyneth Paltrow was the executive producer on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that one? Yeah, it was um, an advertorial kind of. Yes, exactly. It was. I mean, it was extremely watchable. It was kind of weirdly fascinating. There was that one episode where all the, the Goop staff went and did like mushrooms in, I think, Mexico um, as some yes. kind of like team bonding exercise like you've never <laughs> seen before, um, right. which was which was quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, it was essentially a promo for Goop. Mm -hmm. So not really a documentary in the sense of being objective in any sense at all. Right. Then along came this, the Taylor Swift documentary, which I remember at the time you recommended on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and I, I went away and watched it. And it was interesting in one sense, but also, and it wasn't made by her team or anything like that, so it wasn't the kind of Gwyneth Paltrow thing. But I also felt like the documentary makers were just very much on her side. Yeah, they loved Taylor Swift. <laughs> they like... really did. Um, but it felt quite unbalanced and kind of frustrating. And I was like, there's lots of really interesting stuff here. And they're kind of not quite digging into it. So that was a bit frustrating. I then watched a 12-part documentary on Netflix about babies. I think it was actually just called Babies. Yes, you watch that? Yes. <laughs> the algorithm had somehow determined that I might be interested in this. Don't know how. Um, maybe it's all my Google history. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's basically about how babies develop over the first year of life. So like walking, talking, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it was sort of supposed to be scientific but basically it was quite a lot of glamorous locations around the world loads of like drone shots mm. not many insights right considering I watched 12 hours of this didn't really learn anything um and that kind of pushed me over the edge and it got me thinking like what is it about I mean obviously not all these documentaries are the same and they're not all made by the same people but there are certain qualities that unite the documentaries that I've been watching on Netflix obviously I'm just skimming the surface of what is actually available on Netflix but Mm -hmm. They're kind of glossy. 
they're crucially international because they're trying to appeal to basically the whole world. Yeah. And they're often kind of lacking in rigor. You know, they're a bit meh. Yeah, they're like light on substance and they're not really that trustworthy. You often find out that they've been like made by the person they're about. It just feels like... Like a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, like a kind of pretty waste of time. I'm, I'm wary of sounding like I love the BBC and no one else. I do think there's loads of really great stuff on Netflix and they have some great films there. You know, we spoke to Noah Baumbach on the podcast and Marriage Story was on Netflix. Netflix provides a lot of money to people who are really good and make good stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet Netflix documentaries are poor. <laughs> and yeah. then Tiger King, of course, came along and I was like, right, okay, I am ready to hate this. <laughs> right. um, we don't need to talk about Tiger King because... I don't think any more words should be spilt on it. I mean, it was like problematic in lots of ways. Right. If people want to know more about Tiger King, there was a really good episode of um of the podcast from the New York Times still processing all about it, which yeah, they kind of excellent. really pick it to bits and it's very satisfying to listen to. It's a very good episode. Um, so this is the kind of like, I guess, anti-Netflix mood that I've been in since <laughs> lockdown. And then... And then... Wait for it. Oh, I can't and wait. And then... <laughs> Along came Michelle Obama with her documentary becoming uh, based on her memoir. Michelle Obama solves all. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Mm. It's completely charming. Um, mm-hmm. You can't. I was going to say you can't not like it. I think I can't not like it. Mm-hmm. I at lots of points just found myself like beaming at my laptop screen watching it. It just made me so happy. Um, and in a way. It has all the it has all the things that I found annoying in other Netflix documentaries. Like it's glossy, it's quite cheesy. It's made by the Obama's production company, Higher <laughs> Ground, um, and yet it's Michelle Obama. So right. it somehow has substance. Like it's quite interesting about her relationship with Barack. It's very interesting about her upbringing. Mm. Um, it has these scenes of her talking to community groups and particularly to young women, to young black women, and. It does give you an insight into her personality and into mm. her kind of force of personality, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, it completely <laughs> wiped away all the reservations I had about Netflix. <laughs> you know what we should do, Grizz, is we should collect what's actually good on Netflix. Culture Call listeners give each other really good recommendations. Yeah, that would be great because the thing is there is actually really good stuff on Netflix. It's just sometimes hard to get to it. It's hard to find it beneath all mm. the fluff. Um, so let's get around the algorithm together and find this stuff. <laughs> yes, please. So listeners, if you um, know of something that's like very good on Netflix or any of the other um, really available streaming platforms, write to us. Uh, you can tweet us at FT Culture Call. You can email us at culturecall at ft.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter. We'll put it all on the show notes. But um, yeah, let us know. And we'll publish it. Perfect. Now, Jeremy O'Harris. So we really think Jeremy O'Harris is a brilliant mind and um, the epitome of someone who's really pushing culture forward, which is something that we use as a filter on the show. You know, when we think about who we want to have on or what we want to recommend, we often think like, are they pushing culture forward? Um, And uh, I saw Slave Play in New York in September and was really moved by it. And I actually recommended it on the show. So he was sort of on our radar from there. Yeah. And at that point, I I remember you recommending it. I remember thinking, I want to see this. I want to see something by this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we saw that he had a play coming to London, Daddy, it's called, um, and immediately uh, requested an interview with him, ultra Mm -hmm. keen. Um, (laughs) And he said yes. 
So he ended up being like Ira Glass was the last person that I saw in the real world. My last day in the before time before um, <laughs> the world closed up. Uh, he was the last interview you did. He was the last person you saw. That is a weird thing, isn't it? We both did an interview on the same day and it was basically the last real day before all of this happened. Yeah. And I find it surreal to think about that because not only was it Jeremy O'Harris, but we were sitting in surrounded by costumes in the like <laughs> costume department of the Almeida Theatre. But why don't you explain what Slave Play is about because you've seen it? So the premise of Slave Play is that three interracial couples, um, each is, has a white partner and a black partner, attend a multi-day retreat and it's supposed to help them improve their relationships. And um, it's through this sort of fictionalized new treatment and they call it antebellum sexual performance therapy. Hmm. And so the first thing that the audience sees when you enter the theater is um, watching you're watching each couple role play sexual fantasies of an enslaved person and a slave master. Wow. Which is really very uh, unique experience, especially if you're there with your mother, which I was. Um, and then it puts <laughs> and then it puts all of those couples in a group therapy room with two sort of overeager researchers to talk out what they had just experienced. Mm. And um, so it's like extremely unsettling. Um, it's often disturbing. It's often very funny. Um, it's very poignant. And through the whole play, you're watching with a mirror to the audience. There's sort of a mirror facing the audience. Oh, wow. And the theater lights aren't fully off. So you can see yourself and your neighbors and everyone sort of, I mean, it's a, uh, the audience when I went was very diverse and you can kind of be you're aware of how different races are responding and who's laughing when and whether that's appropriate mm. to laugh. I mean, there's so many things that are happening. That's so interesting. Right? Mm. So the lens is on you um, as well as, as on them. And what you understand and what you don't matters and what you see and what you don't and what, all of it is sort of yeah. also on stage. It, it, it does sound incredible, um, but it was very controversial as well, wasn't it? I feel like there was a big kind of furore around this play. Yeah, there there was. Um, pro I mean, probably because it deals with sort of a live wire. I mean, it deals with a lot of traumas that our country has inherited from our history with slavery. And mm. for many that, could, and it deals with it head on. And for many that could be triggering. Uh, for some, it could be cathartic or eye-opening, like a combination of those. I, I mean, I left the playhouse with my heart pounding. Um, I saw mm. someone outside um crying and sort of being hugged by someone. I saw somebody um, laughing. I saw somebody saying like, so what should we get for dinner? It just was <laughs> a really, yeah. it was an intense yeah. experience and it, and it affected people differently. They had actually like tr people trained to have conversations afterwards, like in the hallway. Um, oh, wow. If you felt triggered by the experience. So, I mean, it's, it was a lot. And the script is extremely direct. It just gets into it. You know, you're literally in a group therapy room with these couples. The white characters speak and interrupt and assume what their black partners think and take over all the space in the room and are very frustrating. And then the black characters also over time have a chance to speak and have space to speak. A lot is really said. And um, there was something about that that really kind of scratched an itch for me. It felt like a relief to watch these characters have it out very clearly and directly. I also recommend a review by Aisha Harris in the New York Times, which is called What It's Like to See Slave Play as a Black Person, if you want to read more. I mean, I'm speaking as a white person, so we'll put mm. that in the show notes. What about his other play, Daddy? So yeah, Daddy was the one that was kind of the occasion for, for the interview. Um, it was about to open in London, as I said at the beginning. And it's also broadly about kind of race and sex and power. 
similar mm. to slave play. He actually wrote it before slave play. Um, and it, I mean, it's different though. It's about a love affair between this young African-American artist called Franklin and a kind of older white, vaguely kind of European art collector called Andre. And mm. there is quite a kind of heavy insinuation that for Andre, Franklin is like his latest acquisition, you know. So the play explores all of those kind of power dynamics, as well as being a really funny satire of the art world. Like it's very enjoyable for that reason as well. Um it's, I mean, it's, it's using visual art as its focus, but I think it's really about black culture broadly and the way that it gets commodified and kind of repackaged for white consumers and and how that feels on the inside. I mean, it's quite autobiographical and that's something that Jeremy and I spoke about in the interview. Let's talk a little bit about why we wanted to have Jeremy on the show. I mean, how do you think that he's pushing culture forward? So... I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that he is extremely talented. He's extremely yeah. successful. He's only 30. So, I mean, he, he was one of the youngest people ever to have a show on Broadway and one of very few black playwrights. Right. But, I mean, I think it's more than that. I think um, I think what he's doing is, is kind of reimagining what live theatre can be for, for a new generation, mm-hmm. for people who perhaps have been traditionally kind of shut out of theatre, like people of colour or working class totally people. Um, and we spoke about, you know, exciting new ways of of bringing theatre to people, especially now when we can't, you know, physically go to theatres. Do we know what the plan is for Daddy and how we're able to watch Jeremy's work? Um, you know, I think everything is uncertain and we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been cancelled, so the hope is that we will be able to see it eventually. Um, It just, you know, we just don't know when that will be. But watch this space. Great. Let's listen to the interview. Jeremy O'Harris, welcome to Culture Call. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming (laughs) on. Um, So both Daddy and Slave Play center around romantic relationships between interracial couples, specifically where one partner is black and the other is white. Can you say something about what made you want to explore that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think it was unconscious. I mean, I think that, like, whiteness um, is is like um, a package or um, a container for a lot of different metaphors in the same way blackness is. Mm. And um, I think that it's also just, like, the life that I live, right? Like, I grew up a young black kid who had to navigate a lot of white spaces in rural Virginia. And in a lot of ways, race is really amplified in rural Virginia because people are constantly um, talking about their difference based on race. So... um, Is that different from New York, say? mm, It's only different in the sense that, like, um, I think the reason that a word like microaggression exists is because, like, in cities like London or New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, those those explicit articulations of difference happen in, like, the micro, Mm -hmm. in, like, these, like, um, subtle ways that you may not catch until, like, you know, five years later and you, like, have some moment with your therapist. You're like, and then they said this, and that's what happened when they touched my hair, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, and it's things that can feel more benign but, like, still have a weight because of history. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems like these plays are as much about like America's interracial relationship with itself. Yes. Like its history and how that history is kind of faced up to now. Yeah. And I think that with Daddy specifically, one of the reasons why it's the 
it's the play I've written that's been like most hungrily like sought after by international plays. Like like a theater company in Japan asked to do it. I think that there's something in this play about I think because it's about art and commerce and like black art. Um, so it's like I think this play feels and and also because like Andre's not exactly American. Like Andre's um, is as the stage direction says vaguely European. And I think that there's something inside of that metaphor that feels less about America and more about colonialism, too. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's um, one of the things that I think my plays have always been trying to figure out. It's like, what does the work that my body makes mean in, in a lineage of histories of violence and capture? And, you know, and how do you feel free when all of the structures that present the work that you're doing are indebted to white supremacy and Mm. Like um, male power structures that like are outside of you, you know. That's why daddy's in quotes. <laughs> so the name of the play is in quotes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think also it's much easier to ignore white supremacy if you're white, right? Yes. I mean, that history. There's a difference between facing that as someone who's black and someone who's white. I think well, it's, it's easy to ignore patriarchy when you're a male, mm. like you know, black, white, or otherwise. I grew up in a household with a single black female mother. My main caretaker outside of her was my grandmother, and I had a little sister. But there are still moments where I have, like, complete blind spots about how much privilege I have in the world in comparison to, like, a lot of the women in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm, like, a black queen who, like, walks around in, like, skirts half the time. (laughs) Like, the world isn't, like, opening its doors and saying, like, yes, like, we want you um, necessarily. I mean, in a lot of ways it is, but it's not easy, right? It's not as easy as... um, um, people are surprised by my intellect in a way that they aren't surprised by a lot of my peers' intellect, you know, my white male peers. And I, I'm constantly made aware of that. That's a really interesting dynamic, I think, when someone's surprised by you because sometimes it's flattering, but it's also deeply hurtful at the same time, right? That sense that you surprise people because people aren't what you expect. They expect, sorry. Yeah, and they, and it's so often like shaped like a like a compliment, but when you really untangle it or look at it semantically, you're like, there was no compliment there. You mentioned your upbringing briefly. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Describe the scene and what were your influences? What kind of things were you taking in at that point? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky because I grew up in a city um, that was an artistic desert. You know. I was in a city that was a factory town that was where the factories were closing up. Most of my family members, my grandparents, my mom, everyone worked in these different factories and different types of jobs. And then all those jobs started to disappear. And it was a really rough childhood. And it wasn't very even necessarily idyllic. I think some people who grew up like working class or working poor are like, well, I mean, at least it looked beautiful. It's like, no, I mean, like our town looked gross. <laughs> it was a factory town. Mm. Um, so I think I really escaped into books because books were where I could see beautiful things. And my mom was told when I was really young that like, because um, mom had me, she was 19. Mm. And someone told my mom, like, he has he has a curiosity that's special. That That means he's smart. And you should not say no to anything he wants to do. Like, if he, if he finds a book he wants to read, let him read it. If he find, It's like, do whatever you can to make sure he, you can feed that because you don't want to, like, hamper it. But I was put into private schools, and my mom worked three jobs to make sure I could stay there. You know, I was really obsessed with, like, Harry Potter and, like, literally <laughs> Merlin. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on some British podcast. I was literally, <laughs> like, I was, like, an adolescent Anglophile. Like, I read mm. all the Chronicles of Narnia, all the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit series. And, like, in my mind, like... 
the only thing worth being was, like, a young British child who was traumatized. So, like, because I had trauma but wasn't British, I just, like, had this faux British accent. Mm. And, yeah, and I always wanted to be a lawyer. Like, that was what I thought I was going to do. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, growing up smart in a poor family, um, especially when you're black and queer, you either are going to become a pastor mm-hmm. or you're going to become a doctor and a lawyer. It's, like, it's kind of like growing up like an immigrant kid, you know? It's like the professions are safer. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And then when I was also 13, that was when I had this transformative moment of acting in My Fair Lady and being like, oh, I really like being in a theater. Mm. Like, I love this. Like, something changed for me. And um, I decided to dedicate all my time to theater all through high school. And my high school drama teacher told me, um, if you really want to take this seriously, if you really want to be a theater person, like, you need to read every great play. So she gave me this big anthology of plays, and I read the entire thing front to back. Wow. Um, And that was... I think where I learned more about theater than anywhere else because I just like had uh, access to every great play that was in the modern canon. And this was actually one of those rare books of great plays where they did have women in it. So right. like um, Afra Ben was in the book, mm-hmm. um, Carol Churchill, Susan Laurie Parks. And like a lot of my favorite playwrights are these genre-defying women, women who like take the, the canon and like fuck with it in mm-hmm. a weird way. Um, so it was really informative to be introduced to those at 16 and not, like, at 28, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm interested in the young black artist in Daddy, so the kind of, the the figure who calls Daddy Daddy. I read somewhere that you had originally thought of yourself in that role. Um, and I wondered, is in, is he in any sense a stand-in for you? Like, were you exploring yourself through him? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's no way around it. I mean, something that was under the surface in my social groups, literally until after I did the first production of this play, is that, like, I didn't grow up with my father, and I've only met my actual father once. And that's something I never really told anyone. Whenever I talked about growing up, I would mention a dad, and the dad I mentioned was usually some composite of, like, the two different stepdads I had and the stepdad I have now. And, like, that obfuscation was in many ways protective, but also a way that I was hiding myself from myself, you know? And I think this play was the first time I really wrote myself down Mm. on paper, you know? Um, How did that feel? It felt scary and um, freeing. And it also made the play something that I really wanted to protect and and see done well. The play became more than an object. It became like a part of me. It was like a part of my soul and my spirit. And one of the major rewrites to the play happened two days before press night. Wow. Because I um, I have a really good friend who's an actor I really respect. And he saw the play and he was like, Jeremy, the thing I love about all your writing is that you're always really honest. And everything in the play felt super honest until this one moment. And then there's something that just felt dishonest. And, like, he, he said that and, like, mm. it kind of annoyed me and hurt my feelings. And then I was sat with him and I was like, oh, it hurts your feelings because you know he's right. Mm. And then I went to my cast and I told them the truth about my lineage, who my father was, how that, how my understanding of a father came to be and uh, I started weeping uncontrollably and I don't cry in front of people and then I was like I have to rewrite this play like it's dishonest so it's going to be really hard for everyone but I have to fix this part and I went into the front room of the signature theater and I rewrote the entire section that Mm -hmm. we had talked about and then I sent it to the cast and we put it on its feet that night wow Um, yeah and so the play that is being rehearsed now in London is is that Yes. New version. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And there's something 
that makes you sit up taller when you can say something has hurt you and you've moved through it. Mm. Well, I was thinking also like Franklin, Franklin and his relationship to the daddy character, to Andre, is kind of also a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. It's about Deeply. the black artist like relationship to these white institutions, to yes. the gallery system. Thank you for understanding. To that. money, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. and can you say something about that? What like what were you trying to really dig into there? I think I'm just still trying to figure out that entanglement. I mean, I think that. And again, spoiler alert, if you, like, don't want to hear this, uh, stop. (laughs) Or fast forward, like, 30 seconds or something. I don't know. Um, But I I would say that, like, you know, one of the the things that was, I think, confusing for some people in New York seeing this play after seeing Slave Play, like, so closely after seeing Mm -hmm. Slave Play, is that Slave Play makes such a definitive articulation of the virality of whiteness. Like, there's literally a a monologue that's like, it's a Mm. black woman talking to her white partner and telling him that he's a virus and it's like uh, this corrosive, poisonous, like, thing in her life. Um, And... And and he get and the white characters in that play show through a lot of their actions that they kind of are. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing that was different about this play that made people feel unresolved about it was the fact that like Andre's basically a good guy. You know what I mean? And I think that uh, what I wanted to articulate with that is that even a space like the Almeida, I think in their in their like deep commitment to doing this play, their commitment to supporting me and Donnie and every aspect of this production has shown that, like, they are good people. You know what I mean? Like, and the complicating factor about their goodness is that, like, I'm the first black male to ever have a play in their main stage. Oh, wow. From from what Mm. I know. I mean, I might be wrong. um, And that's complicated, right? And every major producer of my plays has been a white person. I could either, like, reject the relationship I'm in with them or, Mm. or see, like, the kindnesses they're doing and recognize that inside of those kindnesses there are at least tiny nicks of violence that, like, happen within it, which happens in every relationship, yeah. even with someone who's, like, the exact same race, gender, height, sex, everything is you. Those same nicks happen. Mm. But sometimes those nicks have more history to them than others. Yeah, and there is something different about being a black playwright who's, like, exclusively produced so far yeah. by white producers and interviewers like me and critics yes. are often white. yes. One of the things I've been telling people in the rehearsal room to go watch is Satoshi Kon films. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Satoshi Kon. No, I do. He he's an animator. He died at like thirty eight. It's like he's and he was so amazing. He made a movie called Perfect Blue. Um, he but he, a lot of his films are looking at like the psyches of artists mm-hmm. and like how they break. And um, Black Swan was inspired by Perfect Blue. Like okay. like mm-hmm. Darren and I get a lot from that. But I was like, this is a movie about the psychic break that happens when you are a black body inside of a white space. Mm. Like there is something that like no matter how excited or even fortified you are against there, there's going to be a moment of a break, um, which is a moment that many artists have in general. But I think that, like, I'm really excited about looking at the specificities of, like, the black psyche breaking mm. and how we either put it apart, put it back together or, like, keep it shattered. There was one performance of Slave Play, I think, where you invited, I think it was almost exclusively black audience members. There were two nights. Two nights. Yeah. Um... Can you tell me, like, how was that? Was it different? How was it different? What did it feel like? I mean, it was so it was different in the sense that, like, um, my director, Robert, was like, oh, this is insane. I'm not doing this again. This is too damn loud. It's too damn loud. Um, But I think it was so loud because people were so excited. Mm. You know, there was so much excitement in the very first one that, uh, that, you know, for the first time ever, 
um, behaviors weren't policed in an audience. Mm. So it was, like, mainly young, mainly black, and people got to respond to a play like they might respond to a movie. And for me, as someone who actually, like, read cedar history um sorry and i, I did side eye the microphone for some reason i'm sorry um i'm just thinking about all the people online who have been very like well in the theater this is how it goes and i'm like you don't know that that just started in ni- 1901 ostensibly in like this country um, so do you mean in terms of like pitch blackness yes, like yes. everybody sitting in silence and yes. not rustling and yes that yeah. was an invention of wagner yeah like he was literally like you know what people are going to do when they see my plays because i'm a fascist is watch them in the pitch black they're not going to talk in those balconies like they used to Mm. and they're gonna like sit here for six hours and chill and people did it and they were like oh this is cool this is novel this is new Mm. I've never done this before Mm. and then it kind of became a vibe but before that the vibe seems way cooler to me like it felt more alive and it felt like more like what we need for theater to move towards you know what I mean like there's nothing where people can actually be like alive and rowdy together and like um, one of my favorite conventions is that when people would do Shakespeare if you do like a really great scene you know like an Edgar I nothing am mm. and like the audience would be like whoa you killed it oh my god we love it we love it we love it do it again do it again and then the actor would just like stop and then like rewind the scene and like do it mm. again and I'm like that's so cool that was really fun about that night was that like I saw, especially the black actors in my play, be affirmed in moments of the writing and in moments of their performances they never had affirmed, at least not on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, the black audience or the predominantly black audience would laugh at different times yes, or, like, respond absolutely. in different ways? Oh, or? yeah, it was so okay. crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, like, you know, on the black night, what I saw was that there are certain jokes that, like, literally only a black audience got. And there are certain jokes that, like, the black audience was like, yeah, that's not a funny joke to me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I have this one joke of uh, that's a sonic joke. It's a joke I wrote it into the script, thinking that me and my friends would laugh at it. And it's the character um, Philip is playing the violin, and he plays Beethoven, and then he starts playing a pop song. Mm-hmm. And the pop song he plays is "Pony" by Genuine, mm-hmm. and generally that goes over the audience's head. Yeah. But then the Black Knight, everyone was like. Jump on it. Let's do it. Ride it. And I was like, wait, you guys know what it is? Like, it's on the violin. It was so exhilarating that that was the big laugh moment in that mm. scene. It's it's funny to hear all this and then also to know that one of the things that critics said about the play was um, Jeremy Harris has written a play for white people. Yes. I mean, that did that feel like a surreal thing to hear? It absolutely did, especially considering the fact that At Yale, the people that saved it were my black and brown friends. Mm -hmm. Like, the black and brown people at Yale School of Drama were the people that, like, most actively fought for this play and most actively affirmed it after multiple teachers turned their backs on it, like, tried to, like, uh, shut it down. Like, it was not a good experience for me as a student. And the only people that made it feel like it was a worthwhile experience to go through were the black and brown kids in my class Mm. and what what did they see that other people weren't seeing they felt affirmed and they felt like they were freed by that play to do anything at school in a way that like um was surprising to me Mm. you know because i was basically being told that like i was going to become a pariah for doing this play Mm. am i right in thinking that this time last year you were still at yale doing your mfa in playwriting yes yeah so i mean You've had so much success so young, and I just wonder how that feels. Like, do you feel overwhelmed at times? Absolutely. (laughs) I definitely, I feel like the one 
and this is going to sound so fucked up, but I think the one gift of the coronavirus is that I might get three weeks off. And I felt like in a lot of ways, I've I've been asking the world to slow down a little bit. And right now, everything's not just slowing down. It's like coming to a halt. I said no to a lot of things this year, and I said yes to a lot of things this year. And I think that, you know, a lot of things I said yes to were, were some really huge, big things that were setting up the scaffolding for me to have a life that hopefully won't be working poor, you know, mm-hmm. for for the rest of my life. And I think that... um the fact that I haven't had any, even a chance to process, like, my grandpa's death inside of that mm-hmm. or the fact that I started out grad school ostensibly homeless and then leaving with the ability to have an apartment in Chinatown is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. So, yeah, there's a there's a two-year deal with HBO. Uh, there's Euphoria, which you're co-producing. Is that right for the yes. second season? Yes. Uh, the film you're just referring to, Zola, so that's coming out, like, on general release this year? Yes. So, I mean, people will be seeing your work all over the place. Like, even if they don't go to the theatre, they'll be seeing it everywhere. Um, and that is a really complicated juggling act, I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, and again, it's it's all manageable overall. You know, again, one of the things I say to everyone is that my mom had two kids when she was my age, um, one of whom was 10, the other who was six, and she was working three jobs that were, like, labor-intensive jobs. And the hardest thing that I have to do is, like, get in a piece of written material on time, you know? And that's psychically draining and deeply difficult in a different way. Mm. So it's not like I'm like, she actually had to work and I don't, you know, because I, I know that's not no, fair. No, it's either. not as simple as that, but yeah. But it, but I do think that, like, I come from a stock of a family that works really hard and I don't have any qualms while working really hard. But I do think that when, I, when I'm asked blankly what, what's going on with me, I have to be honest and be like, I do feel overwhelmed because there is no, yeah. there's no stress. Like, you know, you don't learn how to deal with this in school. People I've met this year who've been really lovely to talk to are people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Or, right. You know, because she can, I can look at her and be like, hey, like, I think you're kind of the only other person I know who's had a, a harder year than me. Like, mm. how did you navigate that, you know? What and did she say? Take take your time. Um, nothing will fall apart if you say no to something, which has been really helpful. Mm. One of the things about having a huge success, which you did with Slave Play and with uh, Fleabag, is, is like following that up. Yeah. Right? Like, what did you do next? Yeah. She's just very cavalier and funny about it. Like, I think she's just sort of like, we're really good at this. Like, <laughs> like, so, like, don't doubt yourself. Mm. I think it's one of the things that she's been very good at telling me. Um, because I do have a lot of doubts about what I'm going to do next. And, like, I sometimes forget that, like, the first thing I did that everyone liked and the second thing I did that a lot of people liked was the th- were things that I was doing when no one was watching, you mm. know? And do you feel like whatever you do will involve the theatre? I mean, I was quite struck reading about this deal that you struck with HBO. I haven't really read the HBO before, have specifically put like a pot of money aside for someone to be like this is for theater work you know when it's like well they make tv (laughs) um so do you just negotiate that with them and say like this is important to me yeah so i lived in la for six years before i decided to apply to grad school and in those six years there was like a two-year period where i was like you know what fuck theater i'm gonna write for tv i'm gonna be the next lena dunham And I love Lena and I love her work. And I tried to do that. And then I saw how callous and like um, how making how the ability to make art in that space was very difficult. It's very difficult to make art in Hollywood, Um, especially when you don't 
when you don't come from a immense privilege. You know, if you come from a immense privilege, you can be like, well, I don't want to say yes to that. And I'll just get this person to finance it instead. And I'll say no and work on this for six years because I can pay my bills doing that. Um, and the only, and I was like, if I'm not going to make money making art, and I'm, and I'm not going to be able to make art unless I compromise these things, like, I might as well just go to a place where I won't make money anyway. And that's the theater. And mm-hmm. I'll just de- dedicate my life to theater. And in that moment, I decided I was going to dedicate my life to theater. Because and, it's less compromised in that yeah, sense. Yeah, it's less compromised. It's like I can, I can do a three-act melodrama um, about my own personal daddy issues <laughs> and someone will produce it if they if if it has that spark of theatrical magic that like certain theater people can see when they read it on the page and that's special and so when i decided to be a theater person i was like if i ever go back to tv i'm not going to be a theater person who has abandoned theater because i saw that happen so often like people who basically wrote a play to, that was like ostensibly a pilot presentation. And they're like, thanks, Cedar, bye. <laughs> and then they left. And then like, you know, all these resources that were put into this play, all these people who actually wanted to dedicate their lives to theater who had to wait another year um, saw that the soil kept being depleted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is there some way that we can replenish the soil while making work in other mediums? And I was like, I think so. So I've been thinking up ways to do that for like five years. And does that mean that the things that you make in the theatre, like using this money, will then be shown on HBO as well? Or is it not necessarily? Not necessarily be, at all. Yeah. No, because I want to produce a lot of things that aren't mine, mm. you know? So, like, the lucky thing about it is that any plays I can enhance or produce with this money, they will have a direct line to me who has a direct line to HBO because I'm an employee of HBO for the next two years. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, <laughs> coronavirus be damned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. But I also am not interested in asking playwrights to, like, turn their theater into movies. You know, like, slave play is something that people have tried to turn into a TV show, into a film, into all sorts of things since I first wrote it. Right. And I've been like, no, it's called slave play <laughs> for a reason. Oh, what? Phoebe just texted me. <laughs> I'm talking about you now <laughs> on a podcast. Tell her to come on the show. Well... <laughs> What advice do you have for me this year? The year of Corona. (laughs) Okay. She hasn't given me advice yet, but if she does, I'll let you know. Hopefully she'll respond before the end of the interview. I know, that'll be really fun. (laughs) Um, But it does seem like an interesting model, this idea that the film industry, which is so kind of booming might support the theatre industry, particularly now in this moment of coronavirus where actually things that are live and involve lots of people gathering in a space are like seriously under threat. Yes. And TV is probably going to do quite well because everyone's at home watching TV. Yes. And so the deal that you struck with HBO strikes me as also like weirdly prescient, you know? Yeah. Two years ago, I I started developing a TV show with another company um, that was going to be uh, this thing that everyone's calling for right now, which is like, everyone, a lot of people have been like, we want a theater, we want to be able to stream theater, blah, blah, blah. And my biggest thing is that like, no theater is shot well. It's like shot badly. It looks ugly. It's bad. So I worked with like an engineer and like one of our friends is an architect and like come up with the idea for how to do it right and make a thing that could exist inside of a streaming platform that might be able to present some of the most exciting theater in the world. 
um, consistently. And because I have to finish a screenplay, I haven't sold it to a network yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of the most exciting things to me. And I really hope that, that this gives people a chance to look into that because my dream since I was, literally, since I was a little kid has been that there would be some place I could just watch theater in the same way that people in a real theater watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was no way that I could go see a play. The only place I saw, I saw through reading the New York Times or reading The Guardian or reading The Evening Standard. Like, I would... I would scour, like, you know, so many theatrical chat boards to get a sense of what the experience of being at, like, Evo Van Hova's, like, streetcar named Desire was, mm-hmm. you know? And I think one of the things that's, um, that I think people might wake up to is that, like, there is a necessity to create space for people to come see the theater when they can't be there physically. Mm. Phoebe just texted. <laughs> what did she say? I heard the best advice for corona, which I personally think you can apply for the rest of your life. Behave as though you do have coronavirus, not that you were scared to get it. Which I think is like the way to write, too. Mm. Behave like it might end <laughs> tomorrow. Behave like it's already happened kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which I think is good. I think what that, what that would mean for writing is that the fear that that happens when you've had success is that like um, it might all end. Like it might someone might read and be like, they're a fraud. They can't write. Mm. So you might as well write like that's already been decided. You know, it's like it's like like the worst has happened. Kind the of the worst has happened. Like mm. people, people caught you. You were always fake. You're an imposter. Yeah. You wore a mask and you got past the security guards. But now the jig is up. Like it's it's over. Yeah. And I think that's how I have to start writing. Is now. imposter syndrome real for you? Very real. I'm very good at masking it. Um, because I I went to a private prep school. Like you know, so one of the things I had to do the entire time I was there was pretend like I'm. I made sense there, you know? Mm. So I know how to, like, talk like those boys and, like, you know, stand straight like those boys and, like, you know, be like, no, I will not do this. When you go home and for the six hours after you've said that, you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. They caught me. I'm fake. Mm. It's fake. Was that, like, a very white environment? Yes. It was the whitest environment. It was, um, yeah, the only black kids that went there besides me were primarily basketball players. And right. and they hadn't let black people into the school really until the year they started a basketball team. So, hmm. wow, yeah, it was a school that was invented the same year that um, integration happened, so that rich white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids. Right, and so yeah, I mean imposter syndrome. Yeah, you felt that from quite a young age. It yes, sounds. yeah, yes, and had to learn how to navigate it and mm. like bottle it up and like there are moments when you beat one level of imposter it's like a video game like you know on level one of imposter syndrome you're like you're like like I'm not supposed to be in English class for like honors English and then you're like I'm the best at this and then like you go to like French class and you're like I'm not supposed to be in French class like everyone else speaks French better than me and then you like finally navigate and like see someone else fuck up in a way that you don't fuck up and then you're like and like you just keep going through different levels of imposter syndrome until you're finally able to like like you know be where you need to be like at Paris Fashion Week, I, like, had thought, like, because I'd been to, like, a Gucci show, like, I didn't have imposter syndrome anymore. Yeah. And then I went to one fashion show where one person said one thing to me that made me feel so small. And I was like, yeah, Jeremy, you're a playwright. You're still, like, that ugly kid in high school. You're not supposed to be here. Like, what makes you think you're a fashion person? Mm-hmm. Like, what makes you think you're, like, a quote-unquote celebrity? Like, you're literally not. Like, go home, sit down, and, like, never go to fashion things again. <laughs> like, and, like, and I went, like, I went back a level. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I want to ask you about fashion, but also something I've always wondered is, does success help imposter syndrome or 
could it even make it worse? I think it amplifies it. Mm. I think it amplifies it in certain spaces. Um, like, there's all these, like, really cool people who want to meet me and hang out with me now that, like, I've admired my entire life. And it's like, what do you do when you sit across the, from your idol and they're telling you that, like, you, that you wrote something that they're obsessed with? It, like, it makes you feel crazy. Mm. You're like, that's not real. That's just not real. Um, there are people I can text now that I'm like, that's not real. Like, I can't text Tony Kushner. I mean, you just texted Phoebe Waller-Bridge I just know. now. <laughs> that's, that's different because Phoebe was someone that was, like, different real to me. Phoebe, I met in, like, the realest way. And, like, she's really good at being normal. Mm. I, think, I think that's true of a lot of British celebrities. They're, really, they're better at being normal than Americans are. Mm. You know, there seems to be no pretense about it. I think they also still feel like imposters a lot of the time. They're like, they're like, isn't it crazy we all snuck back here? And I'm like, that's the better way to be. Like, we've, like, committed some heist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you mentioned Paris Fashion Week, and you're sitting here looking very stylish. We're actually sitting in the costume wardrobe, which is, feels quite fitting. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about style. Um, you know, it's funny. People talk about substance and style as like two different things mm -hmm. and I wondered do you think that's the wrong way of looking at the idea of style I think it's like the deeply wrong way of looking at it I think that people people a lot of people are intimidated by stylish people because they for them it doesn't make sense but like if you talk to anyone who's truly from has a history with style um and a deep understanding of that history mm. um they've that history has been cold shaped by pulling from an eclectic series of influences that like far outweigh and outshape the syllabi that most people who've like situated themselves in one space of understanding have so like you'll be talking to someone who uh, is an editor of Vogue or something. And you're like, oh, my God, where did that come from? I'm like, oh, you know, this is inspired by, like, you know, the 1766, like, and also I was thinking a lot about, you know, uh, you know, Petra von Kant, because, like, mm. how could you not? It's like Fassbender's moment. And then they go into this, and you're like, oh, my God, like, I've heard five different things that, like, I have, like, a vague understanding of, and they're all in this one outfit. And that... That's exhilarating to me because that's mm. how my brain works. Like, I'm well, that's kind of how your plays work. I was just thinking when you were saying that they synthesize all these quite diverse influences. Like, there's pop culture in there, there's critical theory in there, which is pretty like heavy going stuff some of the time, and they're all in this space together. Exactly on exactly. the stage. Yes, and I think that that's that's one of the like preeminent things about fashion that draws me to it is that it's the best space for inspiration that I could possibly have as a maker and the best model for how to make that I could possibly have mm. at this young moment in my career because you know unlike a lot of other mediums like fashion has to be an art practice that is an art practice that has to work on a like very formed schedule like every fall there's this show every winter there's this show every spring there's this show and that's an exciting thing to like ponder like if I had to do that for theater how would I stay creative and honest at the same time and there's something kind of interesting to me about just like the fact of making even when it might be bad that mm. like gets me excited mm. um and so yeah I love fashion Jeremy Harris thank you so much for coming on Culture thank Call. you guys for having me thank you this was really fun it was great in our little wardrobe yes <laughs> Wow, Grizz, that was so good. Uh, I found myself like stopping and rewinding certain parts so I could listen to them again because there was so much. It's just kind of embarrassing, but um, I just really mm -hmm. loved it. I mean, what was your experience of um, interviewing him? Like, how did you feel afterwards? 
I think I came away feeling kind of invigorated and in a way I wished when he was speaking that I could also just pause and rewind and, and re-listen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he was someone whose presence was just kind of magnetic. And so I just I just could have kept talking to him all day. You know, he had other things to do, but I was quite happy sitting there in the costume department, just, <laughs> um, just kind of picking his brains, really. Mm. It's so nice when you interview someone that has that sort of power and authority and and you realize that like actually they are really that special. Yes. I I liked that what he said about that that woman told his mother like this boy is special like everything he has an inkling for just let him do it just push him towards it. That was such a yeah, yeah. That's such a cool early memory to have. Mm. An important aspect probably to his success. I also was really struck by his and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's advice like act as if you already have coronavirus (laughs) and not like you're scared to get it Mm. or act as if you're a fraud and and we're already found out, not like you're scared of being found out and losing it. That's like an injection against imposter syndrome sort of. Yeah, which is so important when you're when when you when you find great success when you're still really young, I think, Mm. because imposter syndrome is a real thing. I mean, like like he spoke about so well. And also that thing that he said that Phoebe Waller-Bridge said, which is like, you know, we're really good at this. Mm. Like, you've got it. I like that. Like, it's confidence that's really earned and deserved because, yes, both of them are really good at what they do. Like, they're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's simple. Sometimes it's the simplest advice. The other thing that really struck me was when he was talking about the fact that all of the major producers of his plays have been white. Mm. And he and, and Jeremy, he said something... Um, he said, inside those kindnesses are tiny nicks of violence that happen within it. Um, yeah. And that like that happens in every relationship, but have more history sometimes, especially when they're racial. And um, and also that interviewers, his like that interviewers and critics are white, like your discussion about that. And he had this term, the psychic break of being black in a white space. Yeah, I think it's, I think often white people we're not aware of being white. Like that's a, it's a privilege to yeah. not go around thinking about whiteness. You know, and I think you can apply that to gender and to other things as well. But I think like it, what's really good is to actually to think about being white and to think about what that means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not just like a fly on the wall objectively observing the scene. I am a white interviewer in this historically white space of the theatre. Mm. And talking to a black playwright about race and about microaggressions and about these tiny nicks of violence, that really stuck with me. Mm. You know, these things are hard to talk about, but that's important, right? Like, especially Mm. for white people like us, it's good to be uncomfortable because being comfortable just allows yourself to be totally unaware um, and live with more prejudices and be more likely to, you know, incite more nicks of violence. Like if we have the privilege to not have to feel race every day, that should not excuse us from the conversation. Completely. Mm-hmm. It's better to make mistakes. It's better to learn. Um, there's so much to learn. And it was nice to hear you both acknowledge that in the interview. That's it for this week. As always, we love hearing from you. Tell us what you're reading and watching and listening to right now by filling in our short form at ft.com slash culture callout. And we'll put that link in our show notes. 
The other option, which is our personal favorite, is recording a short voice note on your phone and emailing it to us at culturecall at ft.com. Please also remember to send us um, what you think is the best on streaming platforms, especially Netflix, so that Grizz and I (laughs) and every other listener has something to actually watch in the coming months. You can find us on Twitter at ftculturecall or on Instagram at Brown and at Lila Rapp. We will both be back in two weeks' time. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatim. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.